0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. It is a Friday, so it's time for a classic episode of Tech Stuff. This episode, originally published on August 4th, 2014, it is titled The Full Motion Video Era Home Gaming. So last week we did a full motion video classic about arcade games. This one's about home video games. If you're not familiar with full motion video, these are games that incorporated live action video into the games themselves to varying degrees of effectiveness and hilarity. So let's listen in on this classic episode. We're not covering every single FMV title because.
1: Oh, no, certainly not. There were there were definitely a lot of them and many of them honestly not worth our time. And
0: some of them were, you know, kind of never really heard or seen from again, like stuff that either got released but barely uh, was was adopted at all. So we're just really concentrating on the really famous ones, particularly some that uh, some of our listeners have asked about. Including this one from 1992, Sewer Shark.
1: Sewer Shark. Yes. Uh, this, this was for the, uh, 3DO eventually. Yeah. And uh, the Sega CD as well. Sega CD, which, uh, had come out, I believe in 1991. Yep. That was what we decided. Yep. And, uh, yeah.
0: One of the earliest console games to use FMV. Maybe the first one. Uh, and you're, you're, you're flying as a, you're playing as a pilot who flies a ship that flies through sewers. Uh, it's set in a post-apocalyptic future where everybody's moved underground. But there are rumors that there are some places above ground that could still be habitable. Uh, but the government is very much about, you know, keeping those rumors under under check. Uh, and you play a pilot who's trying to find. Um, well, one, trying to fight this kind of totalitarian government and two trying to get to the surface. And so the you had all these sequences where you were flying through uh pipes and that was all full motion video stuff and you really uh kind of had sprites on top of the video that represented monsters that you had to shoot so it's so in a way it was kind of similar to that previous game where you had the vector graphics uh crosshairs on top of the, the full helicopter video. right yeah cobra command so it's similar to that in that sense except this time they were sprites not uh vector graphics and moving up. Uh, yep. And you also had lots of full motion video with your uh your your compatriots as well as the villain, and they were all ridiculous over-the-top hammy actors. Yay! Uh, kind of kind of I, awesome.
1: Yeah, I we're both actually big fans of that school of acting, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean if it's if it's done knowingly, it can be it can be a real blast. But even unknowingly, it can be kind of a sort of a charming Train wreck, you know?
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, I mean, and so much so that Sega decided to ship it along with their Sega CD system.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this was one of those games that actually was pretty popular only in the sense that people who bought the Sega CD system also got a copy of Sewer Shark. A listener's DJ and Daniel, both on Facebook, asked us to mention this one. Specifically. Yeah. So
1: thanks for thanks for writing in, guys. Now,
0: 1993, here's another game that I played a little bit. The Seventh Guest. Which was a kind of a, a mystery game. It had a lot of puzzles that were sort of mist-like in nature. Uh huh. Like, uh, I remember one specific puzzle. You're, you are presented with a cake and the cake has tombstones and skulls on it. And some pieces of the cake don't have either tombstones or skulls. And you have to remove five pieces of cake at a time. They have to be consecutive. They have to touch each other. Okay. And each time you remove them, you have to have two tombstones, two skulls, and one piece of plain cake so you had to figure out exactly how did you remove those so that you would get all the cake removed you wouldn't be stuck it's kind of like those puzzles you would see where you'd have you know uh uh like in uh do you know what you're just shaking your head at me now. I,
1: i'm just i'm just that sounds like the worst puzzle ever i that that sounds like the kind of puzzle that i happen upon sometimes <laughs> in video games and just go maybe i would like to go read a book i i think
0: of the puzzles that you would find in uh and this is going to be a regional reference for some of you guys out there a cracker barrel.
1: Uh, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Right. The
0: little wooden triangle where you have the pegs and you have to try and make the pegs jump each other until you're only left with one peg. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Uh, they had other puzzles, too, not just that one. But they also had all these live video segments where they were other. It was supposed to be people who had attended a party at uh, this house years ago, and you are encountering the, the remnants. there, the they're kind of the psychological imprints. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So sort of like a murder mystery dinner party, except everyone is already dead.
0: Yeah. And you're, you're the one solving the mystery. Um, and, and the acting was pretty, pretty spectacularly awful. If you have ever attended a, a like cringe worthy murder mystery dinner theater type thing, that's what this was in video game form. Uh, Still kind of charming, but definitely I'll show you some video after this podcast is over so you can appreciate it. But Excellent. anyway, we'll,
1: we'll try to we'll try, by the way, to put video of as many of these as we can up on social media. The ones that are
0: they, the ones that are socially acceptable. They anyway.
1: sound they sound very charming.
0: Yeah, this this next one, not so much. <laughs> 1993. <laughs>
1: Uh, Night Trap. Yeah. Yes. Uh, th- this one was also mentioned by a couple of our listeners on Facebook, yep. Paul and Daniel. Thank yep. you guys for writing in about this one. Uh, it was, it was a multi-platform game. It was yep. big enough that it was all over the place. It was on Sega CD, 3DO, uh, Mac and PC. Yep. And it was a survival horror title, right?
0: Yep. And it got, uh, got some, uh, attention from a, a little group called the United States government. So this is right around the time when the U.S. government was starting to get concerned about video games and the content inside them.
1: Uh Yeah. And what they were doing to our children, um which I, I just dramatically overstated because I think that it's a very dramatic overstatement that. Yeah. Uh, you know, OK, I, I do believe in the rating system. And this is actually one of the games that helped create the rating system yes. in a roundabout way, because right. people started saying, hey, uh, there's some slightly scandalous content on this. You're just selling it to any kid who walks in. That's kind of weird. Uh, you, said, you know, Mortal Kombat and Doom and stuff those like were, that yeah, were along that, those the same kind of the
0: trifecta. Right. Doom, Mortal Kombat and Night Trap uh, were were held up as examples of you know, won't someone please think of the children. <laughs> We've got more to say about FMV games in the home gaming world, but first let's take a quick break. So, here's the thing. Uh, The video game industry elected to create the ESRB rating system because it meant that it kept the government out of doing it for them. Yes. Because that was essentially what the government said was you need to create a Either rating you do system. It or we will. Yeah, or we will. And they're like, well, whoa, we will totally do that because we don't want to have too much uh regulation in our industry, because that hurts innovation, it hurts the developers. So here's the question what exactly was going on with this game to make it so scandalous? Well, it was kind of creepy. You uh the the basis of the game was that there were these monsters called augers that are kind of like vampires. Right. OK. And you are trying to capture them and uh, you're, you're trying to to view them uh, remotely and secretly by using hidden cameras that are uh, placed throughout a house. Coincidentally, that house is also playing host to a slumber party of young ladies. Ah, so a lot of the video involves you looking in on rooms that young ladies are in. There was no nudity in this game, by the way. Uh, the the way it sounds like it sounds like it it got really pretty like porkies-esque really oh, quickly Uh huh. it wasn't it wasn't that it didn't go that far so there's no nudity in the game but there were moments where you know clearly it was trying to appeal to a more base level in people's nature it
1: was it, it was sexualized and some parents realized that their kids had it and that yeah. they had not really signed off on it so right right therein lies the
0: yeah I, I heard one of the game developers uh defend this game by saying look you you're trying to save people here that it's the object of the game is to capture the bad guys not to peep on people and that you think yeah but the game mechanic is pretty much peeping on people <laughs> so i mean i don't know how much you can defend it but again it wasn't like the most you know, it it seems tame in comparison now especially when you look at the content that's in some games you also have to keep in mind that by 1993 we're talking about folks who had been growing up with video games since the late seventies, early eighties. And this is something we've seen in the industry overall. As gamers have aged, the content inside games has become more and more quote unquote mature. Sure. Certainly. So, yeah. And it makes sense because these are the people who are remaining customers of video games, even as they get older. So I think that was also what we were seeing. Uh, by, by 93, we're talking about a lot of people who were in their teenage years who had grown up playing. Uh, video games like, uh, you know, me, although at this point I was only going to be a teenager for a very short time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but there were some decidedly squeaky clean video games that included FMV out around that time. Yep. Let us not forget about Mist.
0: A very popular game, is it called? An our incredibly
1: call. popular game. <laughs> it was the best-selling PC game for nine years running. Um It also came out in 1993, and it wasn't a a heavily FMV based video game, but it did have that FMV element. It had some live action video that characters would interact with you through these these books that you would open, right? And and you know, you, it was like talking through a portal, but the portal was a person, person, yeah, a video, yeah, yeah, um. And yeah, it was, it was a darling in the market. It was a darling of reviewers. It uh, is kind of credited with driving personal CD-ROM sales and had sequels coming out for the next 10 years plus. Uh, they started in 1997 with Riven and continued using FMV elements, um, up through the fourth game in the series, Revelation, which was released all the way out in 2004. Four. Yeah. Uh, after 2004, I think that's when you, we started seeing graphics engines improving to the point where the luster was really taken off of FMV. It was a lot cheaper and easier and and more beautiful to create animation yeah, you for would stuff go with, like this. You would
0: go with like a CG type thing that was procedurally generated. In this, you know, depending upon the game, but you know, you could have games where uh, you would have a CG scene and your character can move around and actually view it from different angles. Uh, cutscenes are still largely FMV to some extent, but, um, but yeah, th- I agree that by that time we were starting to see the, the sophistication of the game engines themselves take over where, uh, some of the less, um, appealing aspects of FMV were no longer a concern because you could, you could work around it. You could do something else instead. Um, yeah, Mist was also one of those games that very quickly appealed to, uh, to female gamers. Um, one of the reasons why it was so popular was and, a- uh,
1: and, and non-gamers in general, yeah. people who wouldn't pick up, uh, normal video games because they were perhaps too fast-paced or too violent or too difficult on a learning curve kind yeah. of way to get used to the controls missed, uh, was, was a very basically controlled uh, adventure point and click sort of thing where all you had to do was, was move through an environment and solve puzzles and it was a little bit less intimidating, I think, for your average human person
0: and it was also really visually appealing it had great sound design Oh, great soundscape! so it was one of those games where uh it appealed to people on a level that that basic you know uh, standard video games didn't like they weren't it wasn't twitch based you know mm-hmm. it was it, it could be intimidating if you ran into a a, a uh uh, puzzle, and you had literally had no idea how to even start.
1: Uh, there, were, there were a couple puzzles in, in Mist. I, I did play, and I do still love Mist. It's got a very dear place in my heart. Yep. But. Well,
0: the next one has a dear place in my heart. <laughs> 1995, Frankenstein through the eyes of the monster. And you play as Frankenstein's monster, who has a woman's hand, by the way. Oh, that's, all right. That's a big dramatic reveal in the very early part of the game. Goodness. <laughs> this hand
1: belongs to a woman! Um I'm not okay, I'm not sure how gendered hands are precisely, but that's... Well, you can tell. <laughs> or cuz this other
0: hand very different. Uh so you are playing as the monster. So you're seeing everything from the monster's perspective. So you only see any part of the monster if the monster puts it out in front of his face. Um and you are trying to regain your lost memories. You have no memory of what you were before the uh experiment that brings you to life. Uh, Dr. Frankenstein is played by Dr. Frankenfurter himself, Tim, Tim Curry. Curry. He chews scenery so hard in this in this game. He
1: is one of my favorite scenery chewers.
0: Yeah, he's he's bonkers. Uh, Dr. Frankenstein is the first time you see him uh, is when your your character's eyes open on the on the medical table, and he's going on and about how he created life, and then he celebrates by injecting himself in the neck with something. You assume morphine, but you don't know. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, if you do anything wrong or you do enough wrong things, he shows up and kills you and then says something, you know, like, uh,
1: snarky and British. Yeah,
0: very snarky and very British. Uh, so Tim Curry will appear again on this list because, uh, Tim Curry, not a man to turn down a job as, it's, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, I would not say that Frankenstein through the eyes of the, of the monster is a particularly good game. It was another puzzle game, another point and click puzzle game, very much like Myst, but with a very different, you know, theme and tone mm-hmm. to it.
1: Uh, by point and click, we mean that you could just use a mouse to point at something that you wanted to either move towards or interact with and then just click to do that thing.
0: Right. And so you, it's one of those games where you had to figure out which thing is needed for whatever situation you were in. Uh, and depending upon the way the game was designed, you would either end up with the right result no result or with frankenstein you know tim curry would kill you Uh, then 1996 there was a game called ripper uh, which i first thought when i started watching the video that i owned the game but then i realized i didn't own the game i owned a cd that had ripper as a preview and it might have even been frankenstein through the eyes of the monster (laughs) now that i think of it so this was another point and click game uh set in 2040 and you are trying to solve a series of murders that mirror the Jack the Ripper murders. Okay. In Victorian England.
1: Uh but this one had some really all star actors in it. Didn't yes it, it did. Huh? Uh we've we've got Christopher Walken, yeah. John Reese Davies, yeah. Karen Allen yep. and Burgess Meredith.
0: Yeah. You're gonna rip lightning and crap thunder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you guys should be thankful I did Burgess Meredith and not Christopher Walken because my Walken impression is the worst thing in the world. But, uh, and I love doing it, but you played, you know, this game and you had to try and solve these murders. The the preview to this is phenomenal. You guys, if you learn nothing from this podcast other than this, it'll still be worth it. Go to YouTube and look for the Ripper video game preview. Because uh, also it features the music of one of the best bands in the world, Blue Oyster Cult, and uh, and their song Don't Fear the Reaper. Which I also remember from that preview that I got on the CD where uh, the Don't Fear the Reaper came on and I was immediately impressed. Uh, then we have a game that I believe you played, Lauren.
1: Uh, yes, this was 1998's The X-Files game.
0: Yeah, we were mentioned this, I remember you you brought this one up in the... Worst video games, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's pretty high on my list. It was another point-and-click adventure. It came out for the PSX, the PlayStation 1, as some people might call it, and also the PC. And you you played as this FBI agent character that was invented wholly for the game, who had to find Mulder and Scully, as far as I can tell because it was really expensive and time-consuming to get David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson to actually come shoot. Yeah. um, And a bunch of the other characters from the show, um, Mitch Pelleggi, I yep. never learned how to say it. That's Pellegi. right. That's cool. yep. excellent as A.D. Skinner, William B. Davis, who played the cigarette smoking man, uh, Stephen Williams, who was Mr. X and the, the whole smoking gun nerd trio um, Hickey Byers and Langley all had small roles in this thing.
0: This tells me where where in the X-Files lore it happened.
1: Uh, yes, it was actually in the lore. It was set specifically, I believe, in season three sometime in 1996. That would make sense
0: for Mr. X.
1: Oh, right. Yes, <laughs> it was actually shortly
0: right. S- spoiler alert. Yeah,
1: OMG spoilers. <laughs> um, and that's I'm, this is partially because the development took four years and six million dollars. Um, it was all prompted by Fox's specific interest in having a tie-in game for the X-Files. In 1994, when they ordered it, uh, the show was in season two and was really starting to roll.
0: Yeah, they were it was one of those shows that was getting kind of runaway popularity despite Fox's best efforts to keep moving, keep moving the X-Files to different time slots.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, and and in FMV terms, this game was an absolute blockbuster. I mean, it had this Hollywood talent involved and it sold about a million copies, Mm -hmm. which, uh, they at least made their money back. Well, yeah. At at that that
0: time, that was a really impressive, you know, also have to remember that the video game industry at that time wasn't the, the, giant behemoth that it is today.
1: Uh, right. You know, however, the reviews and the player responses to it weren't spectacular. Not all of them were as negative as I was. Uh, <laughs> but but I have very strong feelings about it. It, it took up like seven PC CDs or four playstation cds there's
0: nothing that really keeps you immersed in a game like having to change out one disc for another
1: continually yeah i personally i just like it so much because i got stuck in a in an action sequence bug that i just oh. never could get around and i was the, like "Welp, i guess i'm not playing this game anymore and this game is broken and it's done
0: and we still are seeing lots of fmv used in cutscenes and support roles the command and conquer games are really well known for that tim curry reappears he um, he was in Red Alert 3 as a uh, a Russian uh type character and uh if you can just imagine what Tim Curry would sound like doing his best horrible over the top Russian accent then you you're 90% of the way there. Civilization 2 had him as your members of your council.
1: Oh, right, right. Um
0: uh-huh. uh, I love that because as I recall the uh the person who was in charge of telling you uh how happy or unhappy your people were was essentially an Elvis impersonator, and yeah, uh, and your the way the game worked, you would go through different eras, right? You would go through the ancient era, so there's Elvis in a toga. You go to a medieval era, so there's Elvis in a doublet. Uh, in the modern El- era, you'd have you know Elvis. So it was, it was um <laughs> it was a, a blast. And then you had other like the super dorky science nerd guy, the gung ho uh, military dude. It was, a uh, uh, those performances I actually really, really love. I wouldn't say that they were all nuanced or anything like that, but they were entertaining. Uh, other games that our listeners have suggested we talk about uh, were the Wing Commander series from origin, uh, Lawnmower Man, Corpse Killer, Ground Zero Texas. We're going to take another quick break, but we will be right back. So... Many of the game companies that made FMV-based games, especially the ones that were solely FMV, no longer exist. They either went out of business or they got acquired by another company and folded into them. Uh, it's just one of those games that, again, the pre-production was really expensive and time-consuming, and ultimately we began to learn that players seem to prefer gameplay and interaction over The the The
1: visual qualities of of FMV, FMV. the perhaps questionable visual qualities of FMV.
0: So again, using it as like a cutscene is one thing, but to use it as the basis for your gameplay really limits you.
1: I've got a quote here that I wanted to read out from one Jason Vandenberg, who was one of the programmers on the X-Files game. Uh, This was a quote from Edge magazine, I believe, uh, back in the late 90s when the game came out. And he said, Working on The X-Files proved to me that interactivity and drama directly oppose each other. Thus, interactive cinema is limited at best and doomed at worst. That was a devastating realization. Drama is all about being a helpless witness to events. The moment you give the viewer agency, the emotional spectrum shifts from tension to curiosity. We could never get past that fundamental thing. Curiosity kills tension, and you end up with a puzzle game with a rich, detailed background behind it.
0: Which sounds like mist.
1: Which sounds like mist. Well, you know, and and I, and I, I wanted to read it out because I thought it was a really interesting and and very strong perspective, uh, especially coming from a programmer of one of these games. However, I'm not positive. I mean, when you really get down to it, all video games are interactive. To some extent, yeah. And and, I I don't think that curiosity always kills tension. You can have very tense, very, Excellently crafted moments. However, perhaps with video, it's so pre-planned and predetermined that it is starting to kill off a little bit of that spontaneity that you get.
0: Well, yeah, when you have no control over. What someone you're watching does, I can see where the tension comes in because you know what you would want that person to do in that situation. It's the
1: dramatic irony, yeah. yeah so sure. you've got
0: you've got that moment where you're like, "Don't go, don't open the door," you know. <laughs> but if you're and if you're the player and you are playing a game, you don't have to open the door. So I think that's what he's saying is that, or you're just curious to find out what happens if you do open the door, and so that's where he's going in with that tension thing. Well, I mean,
1: I mean, I definitely played most through most of again. For example, Silent Hill, my my favorite thing to reference on this show, apparently you know, like knowing that I had to open the door and just looking at it.
0: Yeah, see, I I'm with you there. I think that you can totally have interactivity and tension if you if you structure the game properly. I think you can have both curiosity and drama. I think both things can coexist. I think of games like The Last of Us, which had amazing moments of drama. And, you know, I don't I can't speak for everybody, but I really cared about these characters and I got to control them quite a bit. Uh, so it wasn't like I was just watching a movie. So I'm not sure I entirely, I see what he's saying, but I'm not sure I entirely agree with it.
1: Oh, uh, well, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think that there's a point in there about trying to balance something inherently interactive like a video game with something inherently uninteractive. Yeah.
0: Like a, like a film, like, like a, a regular film. film or television show. Uh,
1: right. Because you're, you're mixing the types of tension that the viewer or the, the player is experiencing yeah. and it gets
0: awkward well and you know when you're making a video or uh an animated film or whatever you can really craft that to evoke a specific emotion and be fairly certain that most of your audience is going to feel it if you have done your job correctly right uh, right right because you you have forced them into that perspective they they can't change they can't they can't make the camera look away uh-huh. they can't focus on something else you know without themselves physically doing it within the theater. Uh,
1: sure. But when you suddenly take away control of someone who is used to having control in the scene. Yeah. I think that's where the frustration of FMV enters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's certainly an interesting balance here that that. Uh, and again, we see this played out today in video games where you will see innovative gameplay introduced to try and differentiate a game from others. And people react in a very dramatic way to that. Either they love it or they hate it, but it's it's one of those things where I think we see that that interactivity is what gamers, and I, I you know, not all gamers, but I think the majority of gamers really are um, eager for. And that's it for this classic episode, the full motion video era of home gaming. I feel like now that that phrase is no longer applicable, I mean, the full motion video era, because we have had more FMV games since. And some of them have been genuinely really interesting, not just like this sort of cringy kind of experience. There have been a few that have been truly remarkable. And as I said, I think at the end of the last episode, I really should get Justin McElroy on the show to talk about FMV gaming and, you know, what what impact that had and continues to have And what makes a good FMV game? Is a good FMV game one that isn't cringy, or is the cringe factor a big part of it? And uh, he's certainly an enormous fan of FMV games. He did a a video series, I believe, when he was uh, still with uh, Polygon, I think, or maybe it was even with Joystick, where he talked about them. So I would love to get him on the show. But Anyway, if you have suggestions for future topics, uh, let me know over on Twitter. That's the best way to do it. The handle for the show is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.